If you read your Bible daily, year after year, month after month, even decade after decade for many of you, you will sometimes uh, come across a passage and you will think, um, I didn't get anything out of that. I'm not sure how this has any relevance to my life. We've all experienced that. We've all um, had the tendency to perhaps run to another passage, not being able to see the value of a particular passage as we are reading it. I'm having trouble with this device again once, once again here. I'm just going to set it over here, Jake. Maybe you can... You guys are used to this now. We've tried to troubleshoot this during the week, but it just... Uh, just keeps not wanting to connect. <laughs> we think that's actually the problem, fighting for bandwidth or Wi-Fi or something. Anyway, all right, I'm preaching a sermon. Where was I? Um, <clears throat> we have encountered, most of us here, reading a passage of Scripture where it seems, because of our own defects, because of our own limited understanding, it seems that this passage has nothing to say to me. When that difficulty uh, presents itself, when that happens, one of the things that we can do is preach to ourselves 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let me just read it to you. I was going to show it to you, but let me just read it to you, or maybe they'll show it to you. Go ahead and forward that, bud, to Second uh, Timothy, the, the first slide here. Let's look at it together. This is a passage to preach to ourselves when we are looking at the Bible, and it seems like this does, is not relevant to my life. It says this, every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. And the relevant part for this sermon to this verse is every scripture. You see that? Every scripture is useful for training you and me in righteousness, and every scripture is there to equip you and to equip me for good work. Even passages of Scripture like Romans 16 that seems to be simply a list of names and greetings that ha would have very little to do with your life or my life. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 tells us that this passage is inspired by God and He has things to say to you and to me from it. You see, we are all fallen, we are all broken, we all, whether we realize it or not, today need God's grace, we need His power, we need His help. And after studying verses 1 through 16 and praying over Romans 16, it's taken some time and it's taken some wisdom of others and it's taken some help, but I have found so much in this chapter, that at first reading, 
I would say in my own flesh, I'm not sure how this relates to my life or has anything to do with my life this coming week. So there are five specific ways that you and I desperately need His grace and His power that I've discovered in this passage. And I want to begin today by looking, by, by, by showing you what we're not going to do, what this passage isn't. So let, let's just dive into the text. Our text for today is verses 6 through 16. Let's look at chapter 16 and verse 6. It says, Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Now, some of us, our tendency when we look at Romans 16 would be to spend all of our time trying to identify and get as much data or information we can for each of these persons. Now, although there may be a little bit of value in that, I want to say that is not the way to go with this passage. In other words, the grace, the profit, the good work that God wants to prepare you and me for out of Romans 16 is not primarily the knowledge of who each of these individuals are. That's not what we're after. Taking verse 6 as an example, there are five or six Marys in the New Testament. We do not know which Mary this is. It's probably none of the other Marys in the New Testament. So therefore, we know nothing about this Mary. There is, we don't know anything about her other than Paul said, to greet her and to say that she worked very hard for you, and the you there is plural. She worked hard in the congregation that she was a part of that met in a Roman house church. That's all we really know. So the first thing I'm saying this morning is the main aim here is not to figure out who these individuals are and to get the knowledge or details about them, because for many of them, that is not even attainable. So what are we after here, the first of five things. We looked at this last week, but Doug Moo writes this. He says, what is remarkable about this section, Romans 16 through 1 through 16, is that Paul commands the church in Rome to greet on his behalf 26 individuals, two families, and three house churches. This is unprecedented in his letters. This is a super long Conclusion, benediction, greeting, whatever you want to call this last chapter, it is on steroids compared to the other benedictions and closings of chapters of Paul's other letters. What I think is going on here, and I'm not alone, is Paul, having never traveled to the most important city in the Roman Empire, Rome, never traveled to these house churches. He is wanting to express his love in a personal and direct way. And so I think he has named every single person that he knows personally in his letter to show love to them and to encourage when this letter finally gets there to Rome that they would greet these people on his behalf. He is saying, essentially, I love you. I care about you. And how is that going to come out? I'm asking the others when this letter is read there to greet you, and he names every one of them. I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of Mary. You know, you know Paul in some way. We don't know how he knows her, if she traveled. Paul's never been to Rome, so, 
if she's never left, he knows about her from other Christians who've left, or maybe she's left. And, and this, what has been described as the greatest letter ever written, shows up in your, in your congregation, in, this, in the infancy of the church, in these house churches in Rome, and, and your name is read out as the other Christians in your church family to go and greet you by the Apostle Paul. How would you feel? Would that be awesome? That would be just, he is expressing love to them. And that is one of the main takeaways from this chapter for you and me. We desperately need God's grace in our lives so that you and I can personally and directly show love to other Christians. Look at the end. Let's go back up to verse 5. The end of verse 5, it says, Greet my, my translation says, Dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Many of your translations say, Greet my beloved Epinetus, my beloved. That's at the end of verse 5. Take your eyes down to verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love. Another way to translate it, my beloved in the Lord. Jump your eyes down to verse 9, the second part of verse 9, uh, or the first part of verse 9. Well, let me just start at the beginning of verse 9 so I'm not confused and you're not confused. Uh, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend or my beloved Stachys. So there this is again, and then we see it one more time in verse 12. Greet my dear friend, or greet my beloved Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. So Paul, I'm suggesting and submitting to you, loves every one of these people, and he cares about them. But some of them he knows at a deeper level, and he has, he has attached this adjective to describe his relationship with them, and it's a powerful adjective. It's this Adjective that many of our translations translate beloved, which isn't a common word that we use a whole lot in everyday speech, and that's why the translation I have has chosen to translate it differently. So there's some value to translate it differently, like dear friend or whom I love. That's something that we might actually say today. But there's a disadvantage in tra translating it that way in that the reader doesn't know that this is the same word he's using these one, two, three, four times to describe these different individuals, his beloved. Now, this same word is used in Matthew chapter 17. And the context here is the Mount of Transfiguration. And let's just look at it together on the screen. It says, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And, and the them were also Moses and Elijah in, in Jesus. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, a voice of God the Father, says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. This is the same word that is used here in chapter 16, describing several of the people as His beloved, both men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, described as his beloved. Now, this word is used in two different ways 
in the New Testament, this word beloved. And if you've been around Cornerstone, sometimes you know that every word has a variety of meanings or shades of meaning. And this word has two primary categories of meaning. And the first one is very, very strong, like incredibly strong. That's how it's used here in Matthew 17, a very unique relationship. And so what God the Father is saying is my relationship with the Son, my beloved Son, is different than my relationship with Moses and Elijah. It is unique. It is, it is different. There's a contrast. It's, it's extraordinary. We could call this my super beloved. So I might use, if I were a first century Greek speaker, I might use this word in this way to describe my wife. I am in a relationship with her that is different than all of the other sisters in Christ that are part of our congregation. So she is my beloved in that way. But Paul uses that, the word in chapter 16 in this other way that is very tender. But it's not in this super exclusive way like God the Father is using it here in Matthew 17. So a definition of the way that he is using this word is this, pertaining to one who is dearly loved, dear, beloved, prized, valued. So I hope I'm not losing you too much here with grammar and definitions because what I'm talking about is really important. One of the takeaways from Romans chapter 16 is that we personally and intentionally express our love to other Christians. This is something that many of us, and maybe more so men than women, we are not very good at. Paul was good at it. I mean, he's using, I mean, every one of these people he loves, greet her, greet them, greet them, naming them by name. And then a few of them, he has this this adjective, and it is the adjective agapetos, not the noun agape that many of you are familiar with, but with an adjective. He has this adjective, my beloved. He adds that to, to both brothers and sisters, indicating these are, these are dearly loved people to me, the ones that I've, I've put this adjective next to, in addition to the, the general I love to, how, to all of these. So where am I going with this? I'm going with this to ask you the question, how are you? Where are you? Who is it that God would have you personally and directly show and express your love to? Now, I don't know if you read yourself or men, and I'm talking to men right now in general, but I would give us a pretty low grade on this. And I've been thinking about this. You know, what, what, why is this? And there's, there's a whole variety of reasons. I mean, if during our greeting time, or if I ran into you at, at, at a restaurant or somewhere, and I just kind of came up to you and embraced you, Um, with a holy kiss, as it says here uh, later in the chapter, and I just said, hey, and then I just said your name, whatever your name is, hey, brother so-and-so, my beloved, and I give you a kiss, what's going to happen? Okay, there's going to be some confusion if I do that, right? So why am I saying this? I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm saying this to say there are some difficult dynamics for both men and women, in expressing brotherly and sisterly love. 
There are difficult dynamics, but it is no excuse to not do it. So how we do it, I think there's freedom. We, we, th- this is one of the things that we can rightly contextualize. The emphasis here is not on kissing or using the word beloved, but it is on communicating in a tangible and real way my love for you and your love for your brother and your sister. That is maybe the, the, the most important theme as we take away greet, 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 greet. Why does he write this over and over and over? Because he wants them to know that he loves them and he cares about them. We desperately need God's grace to help us love each other and to express it directly. And maybe it is, as awkward as it might be, for guys to say, I love you. Or for ladies to say to another woman as a sister in the Lord, I love you. That may be what we need to do, but there are other ways to do it. So as I'm praying over this and thinking about this this week, the Lord brought to my mind uh, a project many years ago at our home in Cool. We were putting in uh, a driveway. We didn't have any concrete, just gravel. And we're putting in, it wasn't really a driveway. It was, you know, I made it kind of justified that it's a driveway. It was really a basketball court that we're putting in. But, you know, we'll call this a driveway. I mean, we did drive on it. We're putting in this basketball court, and this thing was huge. It's like 50 by 30 feet. And a bunch of brothers in the Lord from our church are there. I don't know how to do this. I'm not proficient in this at all. I'm a helper, and these guys either had done this or they're in construction, they're in the trades. We've got this big concrete truck. we got all this going on. And I learned a whole other language during that uh, time period. There's all these whistles about how to move the truck and how to pour and how to do these things, and I'd never heard that before. And then I heard something else that I maybe hadn't heard before. So these are brothers in the Lord, people who love Jesus and who love me. I mean, just to let you know, I'm not paying any of them, right? They're there. They love me. They're not getting paid. Like, I want to do this, and they're coming over. And one or two of the guys in particular uh, are calling me dog. Hey, dog. Hey, dog. Dog, come on. You know, and I'm like, you know, I haven't been called dog a lot. (laughs) And so they know my name. I mean, they know who I am, and I'm used to be calling Pastor Mike, and I'm getting called dog, and so it took me until this week to realize that what dog meant was agapetos, my beloved, is what it meant, but it's hard for them to say, you know, my beloved, they ain't going to say that, it doesn't work. So what I'm trying to get at is we got to figure out, men and women, and Paul does it across gender. Is that complicated? He's calling, he's saying, as the Scripture's being read, and you're Mary and you're sitting in the congregation, or you're whomever, he's described with this adjective, beloved, agapetos, he's describing his sister that way. He's describing his brother that way. He's not letting the awkwardness of it to preclude his expression of love. So we desperately need God's grace to show us how to show love and how to speak it to one another. So that's the first of 
five things that I want us to see in today's passage. Let's come back to our text here and look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, which he doesn't mean blood relatives here. He's saying they're Jewish folk. Now, these are interesting. These are Hellenistic Jews. That is, they have culturally or or ethnically, they're Greek in their background. We know that by their names, Andronicus and Junius. This couple are, are Greek in their ethnic heritage, but they are Jews. And so there's kind of a beauty there in him describing them as my relatives or my kinsmen or however your translation have it, has it, who have been in prison with me. Again, we don't know if they were literally in him with prison, literally with Paul, or if they were just also suffering in prison in some way for the sake of the gospel, but he, he points that out. They are outstanding among the apostles, is what my translation says. Yours might say something like, they were esteemed highly among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. They were in Christ before I was. So a second thing that we need grace for in in this passage that at first glance might seem to have nothing to do with our lives um, has to do with the team aspect of ministry here. Uh, Doug Moo again, he writes this. He says, Paul's reference to co-workers reminds us that Paul was not a lone ranger kind of missionary. At every point in his ministry, Paul depended on a significant number of others who are working along with him. I mean, it is remarkable to me he has never been to Rome at this point. He has never been to these churches and how he is identifying by name all of these people in these small house churches in those congregations. It's extraordinary. And all throughout the New Testament, we see this emphasis on a plurality of leadership or on teamwork when it comes to displaying and spreading the gospel. And we see a de-emphasis and a criticism on identifying certain leaders who we might have the tendency of making them into celebrities. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes this. He says, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? Meaning you are just acting like people of the world. What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So a second takeaway from Romans chapter 16 is how displaying the beauty of the gospel and spreading the truth of the gospel is a team activity. It is not about getting certain leaders who do everything and we all just follow. These, going back to verse 7, Andronicus and Junius, these Hellenistic Jews or these Greek Jews, they are outstanding among the apostles. Now, it's pretty obvious. You don't have to know Greek grammar to know that they were not one of the twelve. They are not apostles. So the word apostles here, the semantic range of that word, doesn't mean just the 12 who are designated apostles, but it can just mean generically a messenger, an emissary, someone who's sent to take the gospel or the good news. And that's what it means here. So they stood out 
among all of those who took the gospel, Andronicus and Junius stood out, or they were highly esteemed. So the takeaway from all of this is you and I are desperate for God's grace and His power for Him to show us how to be a part of an apostolic, not in the sense of the original 12 apostles, but in the sense of being sent into our everyday lives to display the gospel and to share the gospel, to be on a team of making disciples. That is a major takeaway from chapter 16. Let me just mention a few individuals who were part of this team aspect of ministry, both in the first century and in this century. I want to remind you, especially if you weren't here last week, about the importance and preeminence of Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe, um, she said, and I'm saying to you and me, that we need to be able to say, I can do that, Lord. Like, what would he have you do this week, this month, this year, to further the gospel, to display the gospel? There are things that you can do. What did Phoebe do? You know, those of you that were here last week, she took the, the epistle to the Romans to Rome. She was near Corinth in Cenchreae. She's a long ways away. This was a woman who has considerable resources. She was, in the, the words of, of one of my sons, a high net worth individual. She has a lot of money. Unlike many people who are high net worth individuals, she is using her money for the kingdom of God. And Paul has written this letter, and he needs to get it to Rome, and he is in Corinth or in Cancreae, where she is from, the house church there. And so, what, um, so, so she, she's willing to take this thing all this way. I, I've got a map here. I put it on Google Maps. I put in directions from Corinth to Rome. Now, by ferry and by car, it's 18 hours and 43 minutes. Um, back in the day, it would have uh, about a 745-mile journey. In the first century, if every condition was perfect, a record speed would be about 10 days. It probably took her upwards of three or four weeks to get this letter to Rome. That's what she could do, and that's what she did. She's part of the apostolic team of making disciples, and I can do that. And so she, she does that. She's part of this team. I can get the letter there. What an incredible thing for her to do and to accomplish. I can just imagine her, and I think this is what happened. I think she eventually gets there, probably after several weeks, to Rome, she goes to the house church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's home. She gives it to them. And someone who is designated to read Scripture that day reads the letter from Paul to the Romans. She's sitting in the audience. She's in the congregation. And who's the first person mentioned? Greet, uh, the first person mentioned, before we get to verse 3, is I commend to you our sister Phoebe servant of the church in Cancrea, like a suburb of Corinth. Receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. She, she may need help from you. She's been a great help to many people, including me, including the Apostle Paul. She did what she could. 
we should be asking ourselves as we look at Romans 16, what, what, what can I do to, to, to display the gospel, to advance the gospel? Now, several, couple guys I want to mention right now, I won't say their last names, I didn't ask their permission, but they can get to me afterwards here. But, you know, we, we've recently had um, a couple of our, our leaders of the What Would Jesus Do van uh, move to Florida. And I forgot to put in the email this week, no one else is allowed to move to Florida or Texas. Did you guys, I'll just give you that verbally. Um, they moved to Florida. We need some new leaders. And so there's a couple guys named Mike and Mike, and they heard about this, and they said, well, I can do that. I can do that, Lord. Phoebe said, I, I, I can do that, Lord. I can, I can take the van over here to the DeWitt Center, people who are sleeping outside at night, and I can give them a cup of coffee and, and a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and, and pray that God might use me. I can do that, Lord. I can be a part of an apostolic team of making disciples. That's what Phoebe did. This is part of what we should take away as we read Romans chapter 16. What would he have me do? Yesterday, I'm driving down our little road, and I see a, a neighbor's moved, a new, uh, uh, folks have just moved in, a uh, new into this home on our, on our street of, of five houses. And there is just a, a torrent of water coming down from their house, going over the road, and it's part of the road they don't ever drive on. So I pull in. I haven't met them yet, and I pull in to tell them they, they have a leaking pipe. And he comes out, and, I mean, he was just so happy to see me. I was on my way somewhere. I didn't really have time to talk. You ever been in that situation? And he thought I was just here to talk. So I delayed where I was going to and, and spoke with him, told him about his leaking thing. Turns out he's emptying his swimming pool which he says he needs a shovel to clean the bottom, and that's hard to do when it's full of water. So, so the water was a normal thing. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this is because God has impressed upon me to invite them to dinner at our, at our table, at our home, and I did that yesterday. I can do that, Lord. That's, that's how I can display the gospel by being hospitable to the people who just moved on our street and having them soon to our home. So what would God have you do? I can, I can do that, Lord. You are on an apostolic team. God has you here and in your workplace or your retirement or your school or whatever, wherever you are every day to, to, to make disciples, to display the gospel, to advance the gospel. So that's verse 7. Let's come back to our text here. Um, look at, with me at verse 6. Verse 6. Uh, we've already looked at it, but we're just noting something else here where it says Mary worked very hard. Jump down to verse 12. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard. And then we see it um, again in verse 12. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. So, a... Um, a, a third way that we need God's grace for him to change us that comes out of Romans 16 is that God needs, we need God's help so that we work hard at displaying and spreading the gospel. Now, I know many of you men work very hard to provide for your families. Many of you women work hard to provide for your families. I get an amen there? I mean, it's not only men. It, it is both who work, 
or maybe you're just working to work, whatever. I know many of you, men and women, work hard. In other words, maybe you don't even need to provide for your family, but you are a hard worker. That is good. But what is being spoken about here is being a hard worker for the gospel. So that would mean as I go to work, I have on my mind that my main mission, according to the Lord, according to the Great Commission, is to make disciples. So as I go to my secular job, obviously there are limitations, but I know, God, that you have called me and put me here to be a witness for the gospel. And that is the hard work that is being spoken about here. So in general, my observation is many of us, men and women, are good at working hard. God, help us to work hard at displaying and spreading the gospel. This is pointed out several times. It's not easy. We have a culture that is against us. We have an enemy that is against us. But he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And we do not need to be afraid. And God is expecting us to work hard. This is one of the takeaways from Romans chapter 16. These two ladies, like Trefina and Trefosa, have worked hard. They are serving as examples to us. So that's verse 6. Let's, um, let's look briefly at verse 13. Verse 13. It says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. And I'm referencing here verse 13 to focus not on Rufus, but on his mother, who is not named. She has been a mother. I take that to mean that she has been incredibly hospitable to Paul himself. This is part of what she could do, and that's what she did to display the gospel and to advance the gospel, to be hospitable to Paul. What can I do? But a fourth takeaway from this passage I want to suggest is to affirm the vital role of women in displaying and spreading the gospel. Look at what uh, Doug Moo writes on this, about this. He says, Paul's mention of nine women in this list reminds us that women played an important role in the early church. I mean, important role. She got, Phoebe got the letter. I mean, we, ha- we are reading Romans today because Phoebe took the letter safely and got it from the Corinth area to Rome. Important role in the early church. Moreover, five of these women, Priscilla, Julia, Tryphena, and Tryphosa, and Persis are commended for their labor in the Lord. Now, we could say a lot more about this. This is a, a big issue, and gender is increasingly becoming a controversial and debated issue in our society and culture. We look to the Scriptures to find out what is true, and as we look at Romans 16, and as we look at the New Testament, we see that women played significant and important roles in the life of the church and in the advancement of the gospel. And we need to affirm that today as well. Jesus broke all sorts of cultural barriers and and boundaries and expectations 
both ethnically, talking to Samaritans, for example, as a Jew, and gender expectations, that a man would not speak to a woman in a public setting like at a well, especially a Jewish man. Jesus broke those down, and he was not going to follow the cultural expectations that were very different than in the foothills and in California in 2022, but he had very different cultural expectations that he did not follow. So on the one hand, we need to affirm the role of women in advancing the gospel and acknowledge in any way throughout the 2,000-year history of the church where, where women have been ill-treated and not treated the way Paul treats them here in Romans 16. This is a model for us. To bring some balance to that, one commentator writes that, scriptural balance to that. A number of women, like Mary, are commended in chapter 16 for their hard work, but such work does not mean that these women served as pastors, elders, or overseers. We don't see that in this text. We don't see that in the New Testament. Jesus was willing to go against cultural norms, and yet when he chose the 12, he chose 12 men. As they established churches and elders, they chose men to be those elders. So I'm saying two things that the New Testament is saying here, and one of them is affirming the role of women in the advancement of the gospel and also affirming the New Testament teaching role distinctions. We'll save that for another Sunday. That's in other passages, but both of these things are taught simultaneously in the New Testament. So affirming the vital role of women in displaying and spreading the gospel. And then finally, I need to, to, uh, to, to, to land this plane, as we say, because we have the Lord's Supper and some other things to do. So I'm going to be very brief in this last one. Um, Did I say the fourth one? Affirming the vital role of women in displaying and spreading the gospel. And then the final thing I I want to mention, uh, the fifth and final thing, involves economics, as it were. So many of the names that are listed here, although we don't know much about most of these people, Ampliatus, Urbanus, the household servants of Aristobulus, this would be a very uh, another high net worth individual politician sort of thing. Those servants and possibly slaves there, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Hermes, these are all people who were either were or are slaves. We know that by their names. Now slavery is is evil and it's wrong. The slavery in the first century was very different than the kind of slavery that we had in this country based on white supremacy and racism. That's not how it was. It's always been wrong, but it it was different. Just a couple things about slavery in the first century. A worthy slave could expect his freedom in about seven years. That, of course, was not the norm in our country prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Many slaves in the first century had rights to a wife and a family. Slavery in our country was so destructive because slaves did not have the right to a spouse or to their children, or to a family. They were property. So I'm saying all this to say that many people transitioned from this, and they are in the church at Rome in the first century, and they have high net worth individuals like Phoebe among them. What does this tell us? This tells us that the early church in Rome 
was radically diverse economically. Jesus had brought people together from all spectrums of society in these congregations that fit into a large home in Rome in the first century. And so a takeaway here, the final one, fifth and final one, is be ready to befriend disciples of every economic category. It doesn't mean we have to do that, but this is something that was going on, not just in Rome, but in the other churches. That people that were so diverse economically, so diverse ethnically, so diverse in every way, and yet Jesus is bringing them together into a church where they love one another and are displaying and advancing the gospel. Those are five things. I could have a lot more from Romans chapter 16. A chapter, when I first read it, I thought, how am I going to relate this to us? And God has shown me, and now you, by mostly through the wisdom of others, how relevant Romans 16 is to our lives. Let's bow our heads together and thank him for his word. God, we thank you for your word. But mostly, God, we ask that you would change us in some of these ways that we have looked at this morning. We began with the emphasis that we see in directly and personally showing love to others as brothers and sisters, being direct and, and help us with our communication, help us with our, our hugs or our high fives or our handshakes or our writing, our texting, however we do it, help us to personally and directly show love to each other. God, open our eyes that the church is not led by super pastors or Apollos or, or Paul, but by a team of people. Lord, help us to see what we can do and to do it for you. Help us to work hard, not just at our jobs and at making money, but recognizing that we need to work hard at displaying and spreading the gospel. We thank you for Phoebe. We thank you for Paul's lifting up of women who were essential and vital in the spread of the gospel and the health of the church in the first century. Help us to do the same today. And Lord, help us to be ready to befriend people no matter their economic background, especially if their economic background is very different than ours, help us to be united with them in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.